0: So, would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts now um, to to open the word? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks and a God who does not leave us alone in this world, but has given us a revelation of yourself, and that has been given most fully in your Son. And so, we are grateful for his revelation. And as we specifically are thinking this week about the Passion Week, about the trial, um, and the many sufferings that he went through. We thank you for what that reveals about your character, um, and additionally, what it reveals about our sin and our culpability before you. And so, Father, I pray that as we spend time in the Word today, you would convict our hearts of this truth. You would help us to appreciate the sacrifice that is ours to behold, and that we would come away with a greater appreciation for who you are and what you've accomplished through your salvation. So, Um, help us to open our hearts to your word, to submit ourselves to your spirit, and would you speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you may remember that one of Leanna's eyes' first vehicle was a 2004 Kia Sorento. So when I first came here as an associate pastor, that was the vehicle um, that I drove. Now, some of you may have been tempted to qualify that vehicle as a bad vehicle. Um, but I prefer to qualify this vehicle as just one that had a lot of character. Now, if I happen to come up to you and compliment you on your character, I promise that is a legitimate compliment. I'm not implying anything about your reliability or anything of that nature, but this car did have a lot of character. One of its particular character qualities was revealed to me early one morning as I was driving to work um, in Texas. And so, I was leaving Dallas and I was getting on I-35 and I was headed, it was about 6.30 in the morning and I was headed to the church where I worked. Um, And as I was driving on I-35 with cars whizzing past me on either side, um, my car just decided to quit. In the middle of the highway, just died. No reason. And so I had to sort of coast over to the shoulder and get off and put it in park. And after my heart stopped pounding and I caught my breath a little bit, I turned off the ignition and turned it back on and it fired right up. So I thought, well, okay, I guess I'll keep driving. So so I did. So I drove to work that morning and no other issues. Everything was fine. And so, of course, when you're 24 and you have a car problem, you don't go to the mechanic, right? I mean, why would you do that? I mean, why not just keep driving it like an idiot? So so I did. I just kept driving this car, and it did this multiple times as I was on the highway. It would leave me stranded. I'd turn it off, let it sit for a little bit, turn it back on, and it'd be fine. It'd drive just fine. Well, then this happened to Leanna once. And so after it happened to Leanna, then we had to get it fixed right away. There was no, no more fooling around with that. So I took it into the mechanic, and uh, he was able to identify that it was an issue with the fuel pump. And so the fuel pump was not operating correctly, and so he was able to replace that. And after that, there was no more character issues with my car. It was, it was perfectly fine. But I know there are many out in the audience who are much better mechanics than, than I am, but a fuel pump is a very necessary part of your vehicle, as was evidenced to me on that, on that early morning. It doesn't matter if your engine is, is running perfectly fine, if all of the pieces of that engine are functioning well, doesn't matter if you have really good fuel or if you have a full fuel tank. If you don't have a functioning fuel pump, your car is practically worthless. It's no good to you because that one piece doesn't function the way that it's supposed to. And so, as we think about the gospel this morning, and as we think about specifically this passage in chapter 27, Matthew draws our attention to one very specific piece of the gospel account. the gospel narrative. And just like the engine of a car where every single piece has to work together to accomplish the goal, Matthew shows us how essential this one piece of the gospel story is to the whole gospel message. So the gospel is, is a very fascinating thing. It is one of the simplest truths in the world, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and He died for your sins. There's nothing more simple than that, and if you assent to that and believe in that, you have believed the gospel. And yet, the intricacies of this theological truth are deep and profound and mysterious, so much so that we can spend our lives studying that simple truth, the gospel, and not plumb the depths of what it means. And so the particular piece that Matthew draws our attention to this morning is the sinlessness of Christ the fact that Christ was not guilty as He approached the throne of God and offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That is Matthew's focus as he walks through this passage. He shows us over and over again, repeatedly, that Christ was pure. Christ had no sin. He was perfect. Now, the reason this is important as we think about the gospel is that for Christ to offer Himself as a sacrifice in our place, He could not be atoning for any of His own sin. For Christ to be a sacrifice that was worthy for us, God's expectation of that sacrifice was that it would be a pure, unblemished, and perfect sacrifice. And so for Christ to legitimately be able to stand in our place and to suffer and die on our behalf, He had to be perfect, found without sin. And so, as we walk through this passage in Matthew 27, Matthew is going to show us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ was that perfect, sinless sacrifice, and that that part of the gospel is true and revealed here. So, we pick up in chapter 27, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? You shall see to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and left, and he went away and he hanged himself. Now the chief priests took the pieces of silver, and they said, It is not lawful to put them in the temple treasury, since it is money paid for blood. And they conferred together, and with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, just as the Lord directed me. Well, what a terribly sad story to begin our time together this morning. Judas is a quintessentially tragic figure in literature, and he fulfills that role perfectly here. So, what changed in Judas' mind between the Judas we see in chapter 27 and the Judas in chapter 26 that walks up to Christ and kisses him, brazenly betraying him to the religious authorities? What has changed in his mind between that Judas in chapter 26 and the Judas we find this morning in chapter 27 who is full of remorse? Well, I think we get some key from it in our passage. It says, When he saw that Jesus had been Condemned, he felt remorse. And so I don't know what Judas expected to happen. I don't know if he expected Jesus just to be arrested and then to be released. Maybe he expected Jesus to be arrested, to be beaten, and then released. But regardless of what Judas expected, when the reality of the fact that Jesus, his rabbi, was being arrested and condemned to die, something in his conscience was pricked. And he realized his guilt in this entire situation, in this entire operation. And so, it says, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he felt remorse. Now, lots of ink has been spilled over whether this word for remorse communicates real heartfelt repentance or whether this is just being sorry for the consequences of your sin. And, and there's lots of discussion about whether Judas actually repented and whether he was actually forgiven for his sin. And people will appeal to this word, which is the word remorse, and they'll show that it's different than the word for repentance. There's a word that's used here for remorse, and then in the rest of Scripture, there's a word used for repentance. And because it's not the usual word for repentance, people will say that Judas did not actually repent. And I'm not really sure I buy that argument. Um, For one thing, this word for remorse and repentance do overlap throughout Scripture. And so, there are times where this word for remorse communicates repentance. Um, However, I think a more helpful way to determine the meaning of this word and to determine whether Judas truly repented or not is to look at the context of his actions. The way Judas responds to his conscience and the conviction in his spirit reveals to us whether he was truly repentant or not. And so I think the context of the passage shows a heart that is not repentant. It certainly shows us a heart that feels guilt and that understands his culpability and his sin before God. But I don't believe that Judas' actions, ending in suicide, show a heart that is repentant. Now, that's not to say that if you commit suicide, it's an unforgivable sin or anything like that. But I don't believe that, Judas, that Judas's actions here are consistent with a heart of repentance. But as we think about what Judas says here, it's an incredibly important point as we think about even what Pastor Mark talked about with our sin. And I was so grateful for that time just to have a moment to reflect on our hearts and on our weak, and isn't it true that the longer we live and the closer we get to Christ, the more aware of our sinfulness we are, and the more aware of how far we fall from the standard that Christ has set for us. But in a sense, what we see in Judas is a logically consistent view for someone who recognizes their sinfulness apart from the work of Christ in their life. Does that make sense? Judas recognizes that he is sinful, he is convicted of his sin, and he realizes the weight that he bears because of his sin. He says it in his own words, I have, be- I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And so he recognizes the fact that he is sinful. But he also recognizes the fact that there is nothing he can do to purify himself of that sin. There is no action he can do that can atone for that. There is no way for him to remove the stain of that sin on his life. And so, that hopeless place that he ends up in leads to his suicide. The recognition of his own sinfulness and his inability to atone for that sin leaves him in an incredibly hopeless place. And it's the same place you and I would be recognizing our sinfulness except for the work of Christ. Isn't that amazing? What a wonderful place to land this morning as we think about Easter week, as we think about the work of Christ in our lives. We would be just as hopeless as Judas if not for the atoning work of Christ in our lives. Now, the world tries to tell us there's all sorts of ways that you can atone for your sin. If you're just really, really sorry for your sin, that's enough. Or if you are truly living a better life after that sin, then that's good enough and that atones for your sin. But we know from the truth of Scripture that there is nothing you can do to atone for your sin. You have sinned against an infinitely holy God, and there is no action you can do to reconcile that relationship with Him. The only hope we have of reconciliation with God is through Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf. That's the only hope that we have. And so looking at the life of Judas obviously causes us great grief, but it also gives us great hope because we don't have to end in the same way that Judas did. We have hope for the forgiveness of our sins, and that stain of sin that is on our soul is not something that will be there permanently, but it's something that the blood of Christ can remove. And so we have hope this morning um, apart from what Judas had. But as we think about this overall theme of the sinlessness of Christ and his perfection that he presents in this narrative, we see that painted very clearly in this account of Judas and the religious leaders. So Judas says it himself, right? He says, I have sinned by betraying an innocent man. And so even there in Judas' own words, he acknowledges the innocence of Christ. But the action of the religious leaders also communicates the innocence of Christ. So think about what the religious leaders do. When Judas returns the money that was taken from the temple treasury, the most natural thing to do in the world would have been for the religious leaders to take that money and put it right back into the treasury where they had pulled it from. But they don't do that, do they? Why not? Well, in the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy, there are laws that talk about um, forbidding paying money that was used or that was gained through sinful activity into the temple treasury. So, if you earned money through prostitution, you were not to contribute any of that into the temple treasury. If you earned money through stealing or through bribery, you were not to put any of that in the temple treasury because you would be reaping double condemnation for the sinful actions that you did by contributing it to the, to the sanctuary. And so the religious leaders, aware of this law, recognize that they cannot put this money back in the temple treasury. Why? Because they know that it was used to commit murder. They know that what they did was evil. That they used this money to betray an innocent man and to murder him. And so even in this discussion with the religious leaders, we see the sinlessness of Christ, his innocence and his purity on display, As we have this conversation among the religious leaders about what they're supposed to do. And so rather than putting that money back in the temple treasury, they use it to buy a field, which will be a burial field for strangers. And so even in this beginning, this sort of aside that we get at the beginning of the narrative, we see Christ's perfection on display. And we also see our desperate need for that perfect Savior. We see the need that we have for the hope of Christ, for someone to stand in our place and to take the punishment for our sin. And so we continue with that thought as we look at the trial of Jesus before Pilate. So read, me if, read with me, if you would, verses 11 through 18. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, So you are the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders... He did not offer any answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear the things that they are testifying against you? And still, he did not answer him in regard to even a single charge. And so the governor, that's Pilate, was greatly amazed. Now at the Passover feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who was called Christ, for he knew that it was because of envy that they had handed him over. So, in this interaction with Pilate, again, we see the sinlessness and the perfection of Christ on display. And really, what Matthew does is is phenomenal in this story, because he writes an account of a trial where a person is found guilty and condemned to death, and yet, in the process of recording that trial he reveals the innocence of the person who is condemned. It's truly a fascinating piece of literature to read and to understand um, Matthew's purpose behind what he's writing. So even in the eyes of Pilate, we begin to see Jesus as an innocent person, someone who is not worthy to be killed or to be condemned. Now, the Jews needed Pilate because only only the Roman authorities could kill someone. The Jews could recommend someone for death, but it was only the Roman authorities who had the power to kill someone. And so if the Jews wanted Jesus to die, they had to get the Romans involved so that they could bring a death sentence upon him. Notice the difference in the accusation against Jesus before Pilate as before Caiaphas. If you remember last week, when Jesus came before Caiaphas, they asked him, are you the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ? That was their concern. And Jesus was convicted of blasphemy in that interaction. Here, what do they accuse Jesus of? Are you the king of the Jews? The reason for that is because anyone being king of the Jews would have been an offense to Caesar. Caesar is the only one who could, in their eyes, rightfully claim to be the king of the Jews. And so they're changing their tactic, they're changing their accusations in order to further condemn Jesus before the eyes of these Roman authorities. And so that was their goal with that accusation. But as we watch Pilate interact with Jesus, we see that Pilate himself becomes convinced that Jesus is not guilty he becomes convinced that Jesus is innocent. So we see that first in verse 14. After his interaction with Jesus, Jesus doesn't give any testimony defending himself. It says that Pilate was greatly amazed. Now, I don't think this means that Pilate was just in awe of Jesus or um, thought this was really cool or anything like that. I think it means that Pilate was in awe of this whole situation? How is this even possible? What is going on here? How is this innocent man so at odds with these religious leaders, and what am I supposed to do about that? Now, we see Pilate being convinced of Jesus's innocence in two actions that he takes following this. The first, well, not really actions, one action, and then one note of commentary about that action. So the action that we see where Pilate is convinced of Jesus' innocence is the exchange that he offers between Jesus and Barabbas. Now, this, this practice of releasing a prisoner during the Passover festival is not very well attested to in other documents. Really, the only place we hear about this is in the Bible, but we hear about it in all four of the gospel accounts. And so we do believe that this was a consistent practice and something that the leaders did during this time as a way of illustrating the Passover festival and the practice of what Passover represented. Someone being released, God's wrath passing over, mercy being granted, all of those sorts of things. And so Pilate, who is a consummate politician, tries to utilize this very religious um, scenario and scene in order to accomplish his political well-being. This exchange with Barabbas is his attempt to pacify the religious leaders, but also escape without condemning an innocent man. And so he sets up this situation where he presents Barabbas or Jesus to the crowd and saying, I will free one of these men for you. Now, Barabbas, it says, was a notorious criminal. This word for notor- notorious doesn't mean like famous or, or a good notorious. It's notorious in a bad sense, the way Bonnie and Clyde would be notorious criminals, or Adolf Hitler would be a notorious individual. It's, it's infamy. This person was infamous for his evil and for his crimes. It says in Mark that he was a murderer and an insurrectionist, so this is not a good guy. Additionally, the name Barabbas means son of a father, son of a human father. And so we see a very interesting comparison going on between Barabbas and Christ. We have this son of a human father placed against the Son of God. We have a notorious criminal, notorious for his evil and for his sin and the wrong things that he did, presented against a perfect, sinless Son of God. We see someone who is convicted for a sin, who is guilty and deserves to die, and someone who is innocent and does not deserve to die for his sins. So it's an incredible comparison that, is, that, the picture, that the Scripture paints between these two individuals. And so Pilate sets up what he thinks is the easiest decision to make. And it's like those Capital One commercials, right? This is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. You obviously should pick Christ, not Barabbas, who is the known sinner, And so that's his goal with that. He wants to set up an easy decision for the people where they will naturally choose Jesus rather than Barabbas. But notice what verse 18 says. Why does Pilate do all of this? Why does he go to all of this effort, setting up these two individuals and trying to work out this exchange where Christ can go free? For he knew that it was because of envy that they had handed him over. Now, there are lots of things that could be said there, right? It it could say it's because he blasphemed that they handed him over. Or it could say because Pilate believed that Jesus was actually uh, a sinner or an evil person or a danger to the government. But it doesn't. Pilate recognizes that there's nothing wrong with Jesus and that all of the sin is on the side of the religious leaders and the high priests. And it is their envy that is driving them to seek to betray Christ. It isn't anything in Christ. There is no sin in Him that causes this condemning to happen. It is because of the religious leaders and their sin that causes them to seek this death, condemnation, and betrayal. And so that verse contributes to our overall understanding of this passage, but it's also a wonderful reminder, maybe not wonderful, but a timely reminder of the danger that envy can go to if left unchecked in our hearts. Envy is not particularly a sin that we talk about often or that we even think about that often. We're prone to think about lust and anger and pride. But notice that Matthew identifies envy as the bottom line for what murdered Christ. And so we struggle with envy um, when we are jealous of the success of another person. And that's what envy means, when you are jealous of the success of another person, when you see what another person has and you want that thing, whether it be possessions, whether it be a lifestyle, whether it be their marriage or their family, whatever it might be, envy is what motivates that feeling of jealousy for the success of another person. So envy appears in our lives when we're discontent with what God has given us and we want what somebody else has. And so we have to be aware of that sin in our own hearts because we see the ugly end of where that sin goes in this story of Jesus. If left unchecked, envy can result in something as heinous as murder. So we recognize that Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent, And we know that he's convinced of his innocence because he tries to set up this exchange with Barabbas and because he identifies that it's the envy of the religious leaders that is causing them to betray Christ. Now, the center of this passage or the focus of this passage comes in verse 19. So let's read verses 19 through 23. And when he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, See that you have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. And so the governor said to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, crucify him. But he said, why? What evil has he done? And yet they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. So the focus or the central point of this whole passage is the dream that Pilate's wife has. This is the only gospel account that records this dream. And it's significant that it comes from Matthew, because if you remember Matthew's account of the Nativity, of the birth of Christ, there are a number of dreams in those first couple chapters of Jesus' birth, right? Jesus appears to Joseph in a dream. He appears to the Magi in a dream. And there's all sorts of dreams that happen in that story. And so Matthew seems to be most, most concerned with this sort of revelation that God provides. So it's interesting then that we see this also coming up in the Passion Week that's surrounding Christ's death. There's another dream which communicates important truth about this Messiah. And what is the truth that it communicates? sorry for beating a dead horse, that Christ is a sinless Savior, that he is righteous, he is not guilty. That's what this dream was to Pilate's wife. And so she sends a message to her husband, making sure that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man is righteous and he is not guilty. But Pilate's already committed. There's nothing that he can do, and so he goes forward with this exchange, and of course the people ask for Barabbas rather than Christ, and so Christ is condemned and sent to the cross. Now, as we talked about this exchange or this comparison between Barabbas and between Christ, I want you to pause for just a minute and recognize something. When we read the Easter account and when we read the Easter story, we have much more in common with Barabbas than any other character in this story. In fact, you could say that our role in the story is that of Barabbas. We are sons of just human fathers. We are what is what's the word again? notorious sinners, right? Our our sin is beyond compare. There's there's infamy to how much we sin. And we are justly we are justly condemned before a holy and a righteous God. And yet, the Son of God, the perfect, pure, holy God, gave himself for us so that we could go free. And so, right here within this trial, there is a beautiful foreshadowing and picture of what the gospel accomplishes in our lives and what that salvation actually looks like. We are the notorious sinners that Christ dies in our place for, just like Barabbas. Verse 24, now when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, you yourselves shall see. And the people all replied, his blood shall be on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now I think there's a parallel between Pilate's recognition here and Judas's recognition in the beginning of the account. And that recognition is a desire to get out from under the culpability of this sin. The recognition that an innocent man is being killed, and unless I do something, I am going to be responsible for that man's death. And so Judas tries to give the money back and somehow reverse what he's done so that he won't be guilty for it. And here we have Pilate with this highly symbolic act, seeking to to wash his hands of this whole thing and say, this blood is not upon me. But of course, we know that Pilate is absolutely culpable for this sin. He is just as guilty as the religious leaders, and there is nothing he can do to escape the judgment that will be on him for this death. And so Jesus is sent to be crucified. So, with this whole understanding, knowing that our Savior was sinless, he was perfect, and he died on our behalf, the thing we want to end with is, what should our response be to that knowledge? knowing that we have a perfect sinless savior who took our sinful place and died on our behalf. What should our response be? Well, I think we get a picture of that in verses 27 through 32. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole Roman cohort to him. And they stripped him and they put a red cloak on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the cloak off him, put, on his, own, put his own garments back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they compelled to carry his cross." And so, in those verses, we see two responses to Jesus. We see two reactions to an innocent Savior being killed. The one are those who don't believe that this man was the Son of God. Those who don't believe that this man was their Savior. And they react to Him with brutality. They react to Him with, uh, with mockery and by beating Him. That's one reaction to our Savior. The other is demonstrated by Simon. Simon, who picks up the cross and walks with Christ in his suffering lifestyle. Now, I think Pilate represents a desire to pursue a third route, someone who doesn't actively kill Christ, but seeks to wash his hands of these things. And we see the futility of that in Pilate's life. You really end up with only two options. You either are mocking Christ, or you are carrying the cross with him. And so, as we think about this fact that a perfect, sinless Savior died on our behalf, our response must mirror that of Simon, the man who took up the cross and followed Christ, who was willing to suffer with him, not motivated by guilt, not motivated by fear, but motivated by gratitude that this is what our Savior accomplished on our behalf. Earlier in chapter 16, Jesus said, "'Whoever wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross,' And follow me. And now we see a very real and visible illustration of someone coming alongside Christ, picking up his cross and following him. And so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning as we conclude and as we behold a perfect, sinless Savior who was unjustly killed on our behalf is how will we respond? Every time we choose to walk in sin or we choose to embrace that old nature and that sin, we pick up the reed, and we beat Christ, and we mock Him, and we say, you are not the Son of God. And it's much, how much better to take up our cross, to walk with Christ, and to suffer with Him, denying ourselves as we accept His salvation on our behalf. Again, not motivated by fear, but motivated by gratitude for all that He has done. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for this time during the Easter season to think about the sacrifice that you made for our behalf. Father, we're grateful that you were the only sacrifice that could satisfy the needs that God demanded. You were perfect, you were pure, you were sinless, and you perfectly took our place. So, Father, as we accept that gift in faith, as we recognize that there's nothing we can do to purify ourselves from our sin, nothing we can do to earn your favor or to be reconciled to you, would our response in faith be one of gratitude as we recognize the great gift that you've poured out for us and would be be willing to walk with you in a sacrificial way um, and follow you for all of our days? Thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.